1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come... I will give further directions. Uh, let me add my welcome to um, you all this morning, particularly if you're new. It's great to see you. My name's Jez. I'm one of the uh, leaders at the church. And we are in the middle of a series, or drawing to an end. Um, there's this week, and then there's, there's one more sermon next week, uh, looking at the church. Why, why, what, has, what is the church? Um, what are its structures? And um, what are its ordinances? What are the things that make it a, a church? And um, today we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper, which is sometimes called communion. And I just want to kind of give you a thought experiment as we begin. So imagine we just stopped celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we didn't announce it in any way. We didn't kind of say anything about it. We celebrate it once a month here at the church. But a month comes and then we don't celebrate it. And another month, we skip it again. And nothing is said. Everything else is the same. You come into church, you, um, we, we sing together, we pray, we hear a sermon, but there is no Lord's Supper month after month after month. How long would it be before you think you would notice? And what difference do you think it would make to you? Now, imagine the same scenario, but this time with singing. Imagine you came into the church, into this hall, and there are no musical instruments up here or mic stands or anything like that. The service starts, we have a call to worship, a reading from the Bible, we give some notices, 
We have some prayers, and it goes to the sermon, and then we close. There's no singing. Now, I'm pretty sure after week one, Pete and I would probably have a few emails. If it happened for two weeks in a row, it would probably kick off, I think. It would make a difference to us. And now that's a a thought experiment that comes from Tim Chester, who's a Bible teacher. He wrote a book on the Lord's Supper and baptism. And his fear is that for many Christians, we could simply skip communion and not feel like we've missed that much. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper today, this ritual of of taking bread or wine, bread and wine, or in, in our case, we take a wafer and some grape juice, and we're looking at its importance One of the marks of a church, biblically, is that we what's called administer the sacraments. We administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's important to our church, but is it important to us? And so perhaps we haven't quite grasped the gift that the Lord's Supper is to us. And so we're going to think about it this morning, that it's a gift that Jesus has given to us to cherish and to look forward to. So do keep that um, Bible passage open. We're going to refer to it. A little bit later, I'll be looking at a few different passages this morning. But we're going to think about the Lord's Supper, and then later on in the service, we're going to partake of it together as a church. And my prayer this morning is that you will see some of the beauty of the Lord's Supper, but more than that, you will see the beauty of the Lord Jesus, who has given it to us. So, three things this morning that the Lord's Supper does for us. And the first is this, the Lord's Supper fills our minds, fills our minds. Let's just look at um, verses 23 to 24 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So for 2,000 years, the church... Throughout church history, churches have gathered together and had this ceremony where we take bread and wine. And Jesus commands us to do this ceremony. And we are told that we are to do it in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And in particular, it reminds us of who he is, and it reminds us of his death, his death on the cross particularly. And so in other words... The Lord's Supper fills our minds with the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? Well, you could explain it like this. You and I and every human being and everything that has ever been created on this earth comes from God. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have always existed in eternity in a perfect union of um, love and mutual delight And it's like the love that they have for themselves isn't enough to keep to themselves. It it spills out. And so God creates a universe so that there is more um, creatures and things that he can show and express his love to. And so you and I, I mean, I don't know how you think of yourself this morning. I don't know how you would self-identify. I don't know who you think you are at core. The Bible says that you are made for God by God. You are a wonderful creature with dignity and worth as you bear God's own image in your own body and soul. He has created you and he has made you to know him, to be in relationship with him. 
It's a wonderful thing. And God created us and the world in perfection. But the world is not perfect. We all know that. There is hardship and darkness and suffering outside of ourselves in the world. We see it in our own hearts. And that is because we as human beings have distrusted God and we have turned away from God. We have not given him the due credit for who he is and what he's given us. We don't want to live under his rightful authority, even though every moment he sustains us and we are completely dependent on him and his care. But we turn away. And this is disastrous because if you turn away from the source of life, what is there but death? If you turn away from light, there is only darkness. If you turn away from love, there is only disconnection. And so we are in this desperate situation on a trajectory that if we continue on, we'll end up in permanent darkness and separation from God and all his good gifts. And we will be judged by him rightfully. But the, good, the gospel means good news. And what is the good news? The good news is that this God has looked on our plight. He has seen us in our pit, in our darkness. And he's chosen to rescue us. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, said to his Father, I will go to earth, I will join them in their darkness, and I will rescue them from it. That is love. That is true love. And so Jesus, the Son of God, steps out of eternity into time and space, into our creation. He takes on humanity. The Son of God becomes one with us so that we might become one with him. He lives a perfect life that we should have lived. He dies a sacrificial death in our place, bearing all the darkness in our hearts, all the wrong things we've done. He takes them on himself and dies as a substitute in our place and then rises again on the third day as a promise of new life, a new creation away from this broken and sinful world. And today, he offers creatures on this earth, all human beings, the opportunity to be one with him. He says, you can have life. You can be reconnected with me. It's free. It's a gift. Will you receive me? That's one way of explaining the gospel. And we have this promise that Jesus will one day return and usher in the perfect world that he has promised. And what the Lord's Supper does is that it makes the gospel visible. It makes it visible. So each week we hear about Jesus at church when we look at the Bible and we hear preaching and the gospel comes to our ears. In the Lord's Supper, it comes to our eyes and actually to our taste and our smell. The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel in a slightly different way from preaching and the Lord's Supper. It fills our minds with Jesus. It fills our minds um, with Jesus' death. So we see the bread that is broken, and we are reminded of Jesus' broken body. His scarred, whipped, injured body as he hung on a Roman cross. We look at the, the wine or the grape juice, and we see the vivid redness of it. And it brings to our minds the blood that Jesus shed in such a horrific death on our behalf. The bread and wine give us a vivid imagery of the cross. And the cross is remarkable, isn't it? It's the place where the author of life takes on death 
where he bore our sin on his shoulders as we sing. Where the Son of God was lifted up, but not lifted up in glory as he deserves. He was lifted up naked on two bits of wood to suffer an agonizing death. Also that our sins and our darkness could be taken away. So we look at the Lord's Supper, we experience it, and it reminds us of the past of Jesus' death. But it doesn't just fill our minds with the past, it also fills our minds with what's to come in the future. Verse 26, it says this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the bread and the wine, they're like a meal, And Jesus has promised that he will return one day and we, his people, will eat and drink with him in a perfect world, free of all the suffering that's here now. The Bible describes it as as like a marriage supper, like a, a wedding reception or a wedding breakfast. Jesus's people are his bride. We are united to him as in a marriage. And Jesus promises that when he returns, he will throw us the greatest wedding reception ever. And we will feast with him in perfection. You know, when it gets close to Christmas, sometimes we anticipate it by saying how many sleeps there are till Christmas Day, right? By the way, there are 218 sleeps till Christmas, if you're counting. The Lord's Supper does something similar. When we take it, we are reminded that we are one Lord's Supper away, one less from when we will see Jesus. So this is what the Lord's Supper does. It makes the gospel visible to us. It reminds us of Jesus' death, and it promises Jesus' future. Now, why do we need this? Why do we need the Lord's Supper? Why would Jesus give it to us? Well, it's because we are all a bit like Mr. Forgetful. Have you ever read the Mr. Man series or the Little Miss series? Mr. Forgetful, he lives in Forget-Me-Not Cottage. Every morning, he forgets where his bathroom is, and so he accidentally walks into his wardrobe. For breakfast, he always has burnt toast because he forgets to check on the toast whilst it's cooking, and hard-boiled eggs because he forgets about them. He leaves the front door of his house open every time he leaves because he forgets to close it. Now, we, as Christians, are the spiritual equivalent of Mr. Forgetful. Just think, this glorious story of what God has done for us, uniting us to his son, promising us of eternity with him. We have the privilege of being included in the greatest story, the greatest love story in the universe. But we forget, don't we, day to day? We forget. We get weighed down with our failings, with our anxieties, with the things that stress us out. Our minds get filled with the distractions of the here and now. And what it means is, day to day, often we don't live as if the gospel is really true. As if Jesus really has actually died in history and risen again. That he actually will return bodily and take us home. We forget. And here's the thing, Jesus knows that we forget. And that is why he has given us the Lord's Supper It fills our minds with him when our minds are often filled by lots of other things. It's like he has given us a framed photo of himself 
that we can kind of keep on our desk and look at every now and again to remind us of what he has done and where we will one day be with him for eternity. Jesus has died and risen. He is coming back for us. And one day we will go home. So the Lord's Supper fills our minds. Secondly, the Lord's Supper strengthens our faith. Strengthens our faith. Now, you might think it's a bit weird, um, the whole bread and wine thing. Where, Where does that kind of come from? And it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It's actually um, following in a long biblical tradition of what is called the covenant meal. Okay, the covenant meal. Now, a covenant was a binding agreement between two parties, and it it created a relationship between them. It was often a peace treaty in the ancient world when you had different kings who would be warring over different territories. To make peace, two kings would make a covenant covenant. There would be stipulations in that, in that covenant, but it would, it would be an agreement, and it created a relationship between the two parties. They would promise that they would be at peace and not harm each other or invade each other. Sometimes one king would promise to protect the other king. And what, was ha- what would happen is they would make this promise, and they wouldn't just pinky promise. They would um, have this big kind of ceremony, and then they would confirm the promise that they had made, confirm the covenant through having a meal. They'd sit down and they would eat and they would drink. And covenant language is all over the Bible and so is the idea of the covenant meal. And there is a striking example of this in the book of Exodus. You may know the story of Exodus, Moses leading out the Israelites from Egypt and slavery. God leading the people out really through Moses. God has saved the Israelites, his people, and he brings them to a mountain in the desert called Sinai, and it is at Sinai that the people will meet God. And God reveals himself, he manifests himself on this mountain to the people, and it is absolutely terrifying. It's a sign of what happens when a perfectly pure God comes into contact with sinful, failing human beings. There's thunder There is lightning, there's an earthquake, there's thick smoke. It kind of overwhelms the senses. The people are terrified. They are warned not to come to the mountain where God is, not to touch it because they will die. But there, God enters into covenant with Israel. He gives them his law, the Ten Commandments and other laws. He makes a covenant. They become his people at Sinai. And then something remarkable happens. This is from Exodus 24. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, went up the mountain, and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. So whereas the people cannot just casually approach God lest they die, God allows some leaders who represent the people to come up the mountain into the thick smoke. And in some mysterious sense, they see God. 
It's amazing. It's as if the writer can't find the language to explain. It's like there's something like a pavement of sapphire, but, but what is it? We don't know. It's so mysterious. But they see God, and they don't die. In fact, they have a meal with him. They eat and drink. It's a covenant meal. It's a sign of peace and fellowship. And if you skip a few thousand years to the Lord's Supper, Jesus says in Mark 14, it says, Then he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Jesus is saying that through his blood, we are in covenant with him, relationship with him, and we get to eat and drink with him. Okay, so what does that actually mean then when we think about when we come to take the Lord's Supper? It means this. The Lord's Supper has been given by Jesus to strengthen our faith. Just as a covenant meal confirms both parties are in relationship, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus confirms to us and reassures us that we are in relationship with him. Okay, so the Lord's Supper, it's not just a memory exercise. Like the elders going up onto Mount Sinai, every time we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus is welcoming us to a meal with him. We are receiving his hospitality. It's as if he opens the door with a smile beckons us in, takes our coats, leads us to this table where the placemats are all set and there's this wonderful meal and we can sit down with him and eat with him. We will eat with Jesus in the future kingdom when he returns, but we can eat with him spiritually now when we come to the Lord's Supper. And because Jesus has given us this meal, it strengthens our faith because it assures us that we are accepted. We carry all sorts of doubts and fears, don't we? But the Lord says to us in the Lord's Supper, you really are forgiven. I really do love you. You really are mine. That's what he says. And so it's there to reassure us those who are weak. And I think the tangible nature of the bread and wine make this particularly helpful. You can taste it. You can touch it. It's not just something in your head. Sometimes we get caught up in our own heads, don't we, about whether the Lord actually cares about us, whether his heart is for us. But the bread and wine are tangible. We can feel them. And that helps us. The Lord's Supper has been likened to like a wedding ring, a wedding ring. Now, I'm married, but let's imagine I have some strange episode of overthinking where I start to doubt whether I'm actually married or not. How would I kind of reassure myself? Well, I can look at my hand and there's a wedding ring on there. It's like, oh, I've got a wedding ring. It shows I'm married. And in the same way, The Lord Jesus, through the Lord's Supper, it is as if he puts a ring on our finger as a promise of the fact that we belong to him. It's a sign and seal of the fact that Christians are forgiven and welcomed and in right relationship with Jesus. 
It strengthens our faith. The Lord's Supper is a way we receive actual spiritual blessing. The remarkable um, passage in, in 1 Corinthians 10, just a chapter earlier than the reading we had, where Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? Now that word participation, that's where we get the word communion from. It's, it's the, same, the same word. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we eat and drink, we are spiritually communing with Jesus It's as if through his Holy Spirit we are lifted up into the heavenly place where Jesus is and we enjoy the union that we we have with him. We are blessed with him. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, it shows that there is something spiritually at work in our hearts. Jesus is at work to nourish our souls, to strengthen our faith. Now let me clear up a few misunderstandings or potential misunderstandings. We don't get a new blessing in the Lord's Supper um, that's different from the blessing that we get from, for example, reading the word and God blessing us through the word, okay? So the Lord's Supper, it's not like kind of bonus features of the Christian life. It's the same Christ that is given in the Lord's Supper as we receive when we hear the word and are blessed by the word. And it's not as if um, the bread and wine are magic, okay? So if I was to, um, you know, take this little drop of um, grape juice, go down to Weatherspoon's pub, and without someone knowing, spike their drink with it, without them knowing, and then they drink it, they wouldn't be spiritually blessed, as if there's some magic power in these elements. There isn't. Nor do we believe that the, the bread and the wine in any way change substance to become Christ's literal body or blood. No, the blessings that we partake in in the, in the Lord's Supper are by faith. As Christians come with faith, even weak faith, we are blessed and Jesus meets us, but the elements aren't magic. But the Lord's Supper is not just data for the brain. It's not just purely for our heads. It is there to strengthen our faith. It feeds our souls. Jesus meets with us in it. So here's an implication. Don't think that the Lord's Supper is only for the good Christians, the ones who've got it together. Now, we need to examine ourselves. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. And if there are ways in our hearts in which we are purposefully not living according to what Jesus has commanded, and we know that, if our hearts are hardened, then we should not take of the Lord's Supper. But on the other side, it doesn't mean that only the really holy Christians can take the Lord's Supper in good conscience. Remember, it's there to encourage us. It's there to strengthen our faith. One theologian put it like this. The Lord's Supper is not a reward for the strong. It is grace for the weak. And there's a, there was a Scottish pastor in the 1500s, Robert Bruce. It's a good Scottish name, isn't it? And he, he did a series of sermons on the Lord's Supper, and, and he put it beautifully. He said, God has set up this sacrament 
as a sign upon a high hill, that it may be seen on every side, far and near, to recall all those who have shamefully run away. And he clucks to them as a hen to a chicken, to gather them under the wings of his infinite mercy. The Lord's Supper reminds us that God is gracious and Jesus welcomes us as his people. So are you a Christian who feels weak in faith? Are you aware of your sin? Have you done a bit of running away? But you know you're a failure and you desire mercy. The Lord's Supper is for you. Jesus welcomes you to his table today. So it strengthens our faith. Finally, it unites our church. So the Lord's Supper has a corporate dimension. It's not just about me and Jesus. It actually brings us together. It's a group activity. Look at um, verses 16 to 17 again. Paul uses the image of body, but he kind of switches metaphors between verse 16 and 17. So he says, is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? That's the vertical dimension, the way we we connect with, with Jesus. But then he says, verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Here's the point. The Lord's Supper is a unifying act for his church. It kind of fuses us together. We eat, as it were, from one loaf as we share it. And though we are many people, many different Christians, we are brought together in the church. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. It's a family meal. Now, for those of you who know and remember our previous pastor, Mike, you'll know that Mike and Melissa had a big family. They had five kids. And uh, Mike was my boss, and so what would happen every week on a Tuesday we'd have a supervision meeting and I'd go to his house and we'd chat through stuff that was happening in the church and work and stuff. Then after that, I got to stay around to eat with the family um, around the dinner table. And this family, very busy family, they all had loads of different schedules. The kids are doing all, all sorts at school and college and different activities. Everyone's super busy. But what would happen is at the dinner table, all the children and the parents would come together even if they'd been separate for the whole day, it was at dinner that they were united, they were one family, and it was a lot of fun. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper, his table is a place where all of God's church in a local church come together and are united as we partake of the elements together. And you can see in, in chapter 11, if you've not turned there, please do turn back, 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord's Supper is an activity for a local church. And and you see that. So Paul is kind of having a go at the Corinthians because they've not been taking the Lord's Supper properly. Um, In their context, they were having it as part of an actual meal, but there were factions in the church. They wouldn't eat together. Some people were running ahead and getting loads of food, and then some people weren't able to get any because there wasn't any left. Apparently, someone else was getting drunk on the wine at the Lord's Supper. I mean, I don't know if you've had an experience of the Lord's Supper as bad as the one in 1 Corinthians. I'd be surprised. It's enough to make any of us feel superior, isn't it? 
But as Paul challenges them, we can see that his expectation of the supper is that it is taken together by the church family. So look at verse 17. Your meetings do more harm than good. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, there are divisions. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, although it should be. It's just that they've desecrated it through their irreverence. So in Paul's mind, the Lord's Supper is taken in the context of the church gathered. Verse 23 as well makes that clear. And that makes sense of the body imagery, isn't it? The the body of Christ is a reference to the church. And that is true of the global church, but it finds expression in local churches like ours. And so because the Lord's Supper is a family meal, it unites us and it is for the whole family in the church. The very point of it is to unite us together. It's a family meal where we all gather around the table. Now, though it is a family meal, there are still restrictions on who should take it. So firstly, it is for those who are Christians. Only Christians can take the Lord's Supper. And the core of a church we've seen in previous weeks is made of Christians. And so if you're someone who has not received Christ yourself, then I would encourage you not to take it, and you really shouldn't take it. And that's because, think of the covenant meal idea. The two parties eat because they have had this peace treaty, because they've entered into covenant with each other. But for those who haven't received Jesus, they have not yet entered into that covenant. So it can't confirm something that doesn't exist, if you know what I mean. And so for those who have not put their trust in Jesus, this is not for you yet. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is ideally for baptized Christians. Baptized Christians. So in the New Testament, God has given us two sacraments. Baptism, which is linked to initiation into God's people. It's a sign of new birth. As a Christian, you are a new creation. And that happens once as entry into the church. And the Lord's Supper is a sign of ongoing participation. We're we're called to, to do it often. Or continually. So it doesn't make sense for one to take the Lord's Supper as an act of ongoing participation if you've not yet been initiated. Does that make sense? So to put it another way, if baptism represents our new birth, you can't eat before you're born. And so the normal um, sense of when the Lord's Supper should be taken is for baptized believers. But that doesn't mean we want to be exclusionary. And so if you should not take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's not because we don't want you ever to take it. We would long for you to know Christ, to receive him, and to be baptized, to know that good news, to be united with him. And so if you're not taking it this morning, I would encourage you to think about who Jesus is and what it means for you to come to him. He offers himself to you today. And we would be delighted to share the Lord's Supper with you on a future occasion. But it is for believers. And just one more thing before we finish. So, the Lord's Supper unites us as a church. And what that means is it breaks down the boundaries that we would raise 
between each other in the church. We come from different countries in this room. We come from different classes, ethnicities, backgrounds, different temperaments. We've got both men and women. We've got Brits and internationals. We've got people of various levels of education. We've got introverts and extroverts. And sometimes in our minds, we can raise barriers between ourselves and others. All those barriers are brought down at the Lord's Supper. Each of us comes to the same table. We sit on the same level. There's not one seat higher than another. We eat with each other in common fellowship. And there's only one person at the head of the table, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. And so we can receive his spiritual blessing together. The Lord Jesus invites us to his table this morning. And we're going to do that shortly. But shall I pray? And then we'll sing and then we'll come and partake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you see that we are weak as Christians that our faith is often small, that we go through our, my, our lives often forgetting the fact that you are God, that you have died and risen again, that we are going to the new creation. Other things fill our minds. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you would come to us and feed us, welcoming us at your table, reassuring us that we are yours, that our sins are forgiven, that we belong to you, and that you love us. Lord, please forgive us where we have taken the Lord's Supper for granted. And we pray that you would bless us with it this morning. And for those, Lord, who will not take the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would bless them in revealing more of yourself to them in these moments. And may we, Lord, be a church that is united in faith, despite our differences. And even as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may that unite us together. In Jesus' name, amen.